Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian of Earth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Jason Harris of Earth is here <laughs> on this episode of our season on the films of 2012. And this here is our flop episode in which we will be talking about John Carter, the most imaginatively named film <laughs> ever made. And Josh, when doing the research, they talked about how what a, a mistake it was to just uh, call it John Carter and not call it John Carter of Mars or Princess of Mars or something, you know, a little more, uh, a little, little more gusto to it. Right. Yes. To give you a sense of what this movie is, rather than just a very boring sounding person's name that most viewers would not have been familiar with. But who, he's no Coach Carter. He's no Coach Carter. That's, <laughs> sure. that's a good point. Uh, who who is John Carter? He is a character from a series of novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is based on the first novel in that series, which is called A Princess of Mars, much better title, and was Ooh. released in originally in 1912. And this is a movie that in one form or another had been kind of in the works for like decades. People had been attempting to adapt these Edgar Rice Burroughs since the novels. Pro almost, a, almost a century, like mm -hmm. since the 20s or 30s, right? Right, so. yeah. I mean, various people, I mean, since since the early days of the book being popular and, and Burroughs having this whole series of books that went all the way through into like the late 40s, right before he passed away. And there were many efforts starting in, I believe, 1931. So yeah, almost a, almost a century ago, with an effort to pot potentially make it into an animated film. And uh, then a long period of not really much happening with it. And I think somewhere around the mid to late 80s, development starting again. And along that period, various directors who might have been uh, at the helm of this, including John McTiernan, Robert Rodriguez, Carrie Conran of Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, which I think would have been the best choice here, really. And uh, John Favreau. So a range of people who did not make this film. Yeah, I think uh, I think Carrie Conran or uh, Robert Rodriguez could have done a good job with it. Yeah, I mean, I think in both cases, those are directors who would have really leaned into the pulp aspect of it and also the sort of virtual production aspect. Gary Conran, a big pioneer with that, and Robert Rodriguez having just come off of Sin City. But instead, we got Andrew Stanton is the director who... Who I would have thought would have did a good job, too. Yeah, potentially. I mean, this was his first live action film. He, of course, was a huge success working at Pixar, directing Finding Nemo and WALL-E. And I, it seems like everyone pretty much who was involved at some point in attempting to make this movie was someone who was really passionate about this book. I mean, these these novels have garnered a very devoted following over the many decades. And so a lot of people were eager to get their hands on them and make the adaptation. And, and I think it, as much as this movie is, I think, a failure, and I think Jason will uh, agree, maybe even more forcefully, um, but, but I think it's 
Stanton has the passion. And I think a lot of the failures here are efforts to capture things from the book that just don't quite work. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's so many things that don't work, Josh. I mean, you know, let's, uh, yeah, there's a lot. It's <laughs> yeah. not just the stuff in the book. I mean, you know, the performances are not great. The two leads are not great in this film. Right. Well, know? I think what I mean is that it it fails because he's trying to do something that will get or convey an aspect of the book and and it doesn't it doesn't work right maybe if it's the performances it's the fact that it's kind of this stilted old-timey language that the actors can't quite deliver or the idea that he didn't want big movie stars cuz he thought they would distract from the material and so the people that he picked maybe were not the strongest options but i think a lot of it really just comes back to his his desire to really capture what he thought the book was Right. Now, here's something I would have done, Josh, is not made the protagonist a Confederate soldier. Well, that is that is straight out of the book. And I mean, really, to be fair, there's a long tradition of movies, especially Westerns, that where the protagonist is a Confederate soldier who is sort of adrift. And I mean, we we talked about, you know, Unforgiven a couple seasons ago, Clint Eastwood and and He's made, um, I think, multiple movies. I mean, at least the one, I think it was the outlaw Josie Wales that I watched in in preparation to talk about Unforgiven, where he plays a Confederate soldier who is sort of adrift. Sure, but that's not a four-quadrant, you know, big studio epic that's trying to rake in a billion dollars. True. I feel like the Confederate soldier thing, though, is is like way, way, way down my list of problems with this film, honestly. Well, there should that should show you how many problems there are. <laughs> there are indeed. Uh, so this was, of course, a flop. Um, you know, with big, big, big movies like this, it's it's sort of hard to nail down exactly how much they cost because it's beyond just the budget. This movie grossed two hundred eighty four point one million dollars worldwide on a budget that was up to three hundred six point six million. Um, and I think the better way to show how much of a failure this was, was the fact that Disney made a $200 million tax write down on this film, meaning that they declared to the government that they lost $200 million on the movie. So I think that tells you how bad it did. Yeah. The advertising and marketing that went into it. I'm sure there were a bunch of toys that nobody bought or even saw released, you know? Yeah. Um, But there was like this story of like them on um, opening night at the premiere, right? And uh, the head of Disney at the time, Richard Ross, you know, Rich, Rich Ross, not to be confused with the boss, Rick Ross, Joss, um, <laughs> you know, was like basically talking to Taylor Kitsch on the red carpet. And he's like, it's a fucking disaster <laughs> already on opening night. Yeah, I mean, it did seem like one of these movies that got at one point a narrative attached to it before it came out that it was a disaster and that maybe even partially influenced the the failure of it or made the failure greater. Like maybe it wouldn't have been a huge success anyway, but people were going into it with the mentality of this is a disaster. So maybe I won't bother seeing it, even though I might've seen it. Or um, if I do see it, I'm going to expect it to be terrible. And that's kind of what they ended up getting. So that I, I think sometimes with these kinds of flops, I think it's like like with Heaven's Gate, when we talked about that, that was part of it where you start reading 
in the press or by this point on the internet that this movie is a disaster and that's what everyone expects of it. Well, yeah. And I was thinking about that too, because, you know, World War Z is one that I always come back to showing that like, hey, you can get that press and overcome it if you execute it well, right? So, you know, Heaven's Gate went the opposite way. But um, yeah, that that the press on this thing before it came out shouldn't have been wouldn't have been the death knell if this thing was a better film. Right. I think it would have overcome that if it was great. But I do think also that even though it is not great, it might have done better had that not been the buzz leading up to the release of it. Right. Just like if they had actually released Heaven's Gate and not made Michael Ciamino wrote, write an apology after one week, the movie would have done all right in, in you know, the box office. Right. Perhaps. But but yeah, it's possible. I mean, even like Titanic, supposedly, I think is that's a notorious thing is that there were all sorts of stories about how it was a disaster. And because it was so expensive, just like this movie was so expensive, people expect failure. And obviously that turned out the opposite way. And uh, this movie's no Titanic, I will say. But it did sink. Oh! Yes. Yes, indeed. Indeed, it did. Um, So prior to this, although those Edgar Rice Burroughs books had been around for more than a century and had this huge following for whatever reason, and by this point, we're in the public domain, um, for whatever reason, there hadn't been any efforts really or any successful efforts to adapt them other than a film in 2009, which did use the title A Princess of Mars, made by The Asylum, the notorious B-movie studio starring Antonio Sabato Jr. as John Carter and Tracy Lords as Deja Thoris, the Princess of Mars. And uh, and I watched that. So All right. That was, was for that? Josh. Was that good? No, it is not good. Of course it was oh. not good. But it was 45 <laughs> minutes shorter than John Carter, though. So it, I mean, you, like you said, there have been many attempts to adapt it, but that's the only one that got on screen. And um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, also created the Tarzan character. So he he did good work. Yeah, I mean, he was a very popular and successful pulp author. Um, but Tarzan, of course... Even before this movie being labeled a failure, Tarzan had far, far eclipsed John Carter and the whole Mars series of books that that Burroughs had written. Tarzan of Jungle. Tarzan of Jungle. That is, uh, I feel like, no, Tarzan of the Jungle is is possibly maybe one of the titles of one of the books, or he is called like Lord of the Apes or something like that. I read a Tarzan book when I was, uh, I remember when I was uh, in middle school or something and thinking, oh, I should, I should read a Tarzan book. And it was, uh, it was a slog to get through. So I never read any more Burroughs or any John Carter books. Yeah. But, uh, but I did see Antonio Sabato Jr. Uh, look befuddled throughout his film as John Carter. So there's that. Uh, did you ever read an Edgar Rice Burroughs book, Jason? No. No. Fair enough. But you saw this movie with me when it came out. And you like to tell everyone I slept through it. And after rewatching it, that was the better choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we saw it in the theater together uh, at a press screening. And this is another one of these movies. I don't know if this will come up again, but we talked about this in our Avengers episode. Like this is the time period where any movie that was like a big budget Hollywood release was shown in 3D. And we definitely saw this movie in 3D. Right. And as we've talked about, it wasn't 
perhaps made. This one I think was made for 3D. I but a lot of them were like retrofitted to 3D, right? I think this one was also um that they were maybe thinking of making it in 3D and that was just one extra level of expense that they didn't take on so it was converted. The vast majority of the f- movies that came out in this period that were shown in 3D were converted to 3D. It was mm. very rare to Terrible. actually shoot in 3D. Yeah, it's, it's awful, really. Yeah. Low point. We think of how much of a low point in cinema we have now, but everything having to be in 3D was really a low point in cinema that we thankfully have moved past. Well, that's because Netflix doesn't offer 3D glasses with their subscriptions, Josh. <laughs> they don't. But uh, this was a period where this is like off track, but. 3D TVs and 3D Blu-ray players were also like taking off. This was going to be the thing. And and I think probably a lot of people assumed that eventually Netflix would offer that kind of stuff because everybody would want to watch everything in 3D. And, and that really fell off. Occasionally, movies are released in theaters in 3D now, but nobody buys. I don't even know if they make 3D TVs and 3D Blu-ray players. And uh, it, it's just a niche thing that... Uh, our buddy Tony Strauss in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group is a huge 3D fanatic, but he's like the only one, I think. Yeah. George Jetson used to watch all of his entertainment in holographic form. So, Well, that's you know. different. Those are holograms. Those aren't 3D movies. Yeah, that's true. I'd watch that way. That's cool. Yeah. You want to you wanna <laughs> immerse yourself in the holographic world of John Carter? Yes. <laughs> Barsoom in 3D. Ooh, hologram. Dave, did you go see this movie when it came out? You know, I might have been at that same press screening with you guys because I'm almost certain I saw it at a press screening. And you uh, saw you Jason the sleeping. press then, where you were. I, I, I used to get myself in whatever way. Yeah. I, could. I mean, and those now were you know. those were open to the public too. They gave away free yeah. tickets right. to them. Yeah. 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 Now you're a beta cuck in the Las Vegas film society. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Uh, Yeah, I'll just say that I'm uh, it's not going to be a strong defense, but I definitely like this movie more than you guys. Now, I liked it more back then, too. So uh, I'm part of if there's any reassessment of this movie, I'm part of it. See, Josh, beta cuck. But you didn't you're not reassessing it, right? You liked it and you continue to like it. Right. I, I've been there the whole time. Right. I've been a John Carter guy from day one. So anyone who's listening and feels that way, I'm with I you. I feel like maybe, Dave, this is your thing with these misbegotten blockbusters because you're also a big fan of uh, Alita Battle Angel, right? Absolutely. And there's very little difference. <laughs> there is very little difference. I will agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah. Is this one that you took your dad to? This seems like his his thing potentially. No, I, I'm, uh, I have a pretty good memory of actually our buddy from the All Points West Podcast Network, Q, going to this one with me. And I think we were probably very drunk when we watched this movie. And so maybe that's part of why we had a good time. Yeah, but you rewatched it, so there's no excuse. Yeah, you now. weren't drunk I have no time. excuse this yeah. time. Yeah, now I'm just an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, hit us with some of these reviews, bro. All right. Let's, let's do that. Uh, yes. Critics were not as negative as you might imagine given this movie's reputation as such a disaster, I would say that it's the reviews were mixed to negative, I guess. But but I think these critics are all trying to kind of give it the benefit of the doubt. So uh, Roger Ebert said, what we have here is a rousing boys adventure story adapted from stories that Edgar Rice Burroughs cranked out for early pulp magazines. They lacked the visceral appeal of his Tarzan stories, which inspired an estimated 89 movies. Amazingly, this is the first John Carter movie, but it is intended to foster a franchise and will probably succeed. 
The film was directed by Andrew Stanton, whose credits include A Bug's Life, Finding Nemo, and Wally. All three have tight, well-structured plots, and that's what John Carter could use more of. The action sequences are generally well-executed, but they're too much of a muchness. CGI makes them seem too facile and not tactile enough. Does John Carter get the job done for the weekend action audience? Yes, I suppose it does. I mean, I guess this is one of those movies where, like, I had so little investment in the character that even the action sequences didn't mean anything. And and part of that is, like, not even the good guys, but the, the whole mishmash of the bad guys, like, is very underwhelming. You could say confusing, but underwhelming is what I'll go with there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think both. I think there are so many factions going in, in this movie that are in conflict with each other that Stanton does a poor job of defining like what their goals are, who they are, and why they want to do what they want to do. And in part, just sort of kicking some of that stuff down the road for the sequel that he assumed that he was going to make and never did make. So I, I agree with you. I think the action as action is fine. It's not spectacular, but it's not bad. I do think the effects and the design in this movie look cool. And that if there's really anything to recommend it, it is some of the way that it looks. Of course, Stanton, with his animation background, paid a lot of attention to that sort of thing. And, and, and I think that it shows. But the other thing about it is that as cool as it looks, it just looks cool in a very like 2012 blockbuster kind of way and not in a way that captures the particular flavor of this like old pulp novel. Yeah, that's fair. That is totally fair. But I think on top of that, like what you're saying of the idea of who is he building? Why is he building them? Who's a bad guy? Like I was thinking of like, you know, because like Lord of the Rings, right, mm. is a fantasy novel. It's got a bunch of crazy names and crazy places. And we're all invested in every single part of that. And this is another one where it's like Tark Thoris, Tharg Bargus, Hans Bargain, you know, is, and it's is, like is Scott, is Scott Farkas in this movie. That <laughs> yeah, you know, Bob Job Job, you know, Bob Blah Blah, you know, yeah. Bob Blah Blah's Blah Blah. But it's all these names, and you don't even care because like none of them mean anything at any point in time, really. And um, it's just it's interesting to compare those two because um, they're. One succeeded at the highest level and this one failed at the most basic level. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it could have been easy for the Lord of the Rings movies to go in this direction in the hands of someone who didn't have the proper handle on that. And on the other hand, if Peter Jackson had directed John Carter, maybe it would have worked out better. But I don't think he was ever in the running for this one. That's okay. Yeah. He 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 actually uh, he got to make some crappy fantasy adaptations anyway. So all worked out for everyone. <laughs> Uh, Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly was not a fan of this at all. He said, John Carter, a $250 million spectacle based on the very first Carter novel, marks the live action directorial debut of Andrew Stanton, one of the wizards of Pixar. But Stanton's visual brilliance, as well as his storytelling wit, gets lost amid all the blah hardware and monochromatic dust. There is hardly a moment in John Carter that isn't stamped by the generic spirit of franchise filmmaking. Stanton seems to have forgotten the first rule of digital effects. They don't work unless they're fully integrated. But then, nothing in John Carter really works, since everything in the movie has been done so many times before, and so much better. Yeah, that franchise element, Josh, like, 
I do think that's a big thing because like, you know, if you look at what he did with like Finding Nemo, right? You tell a full story and then they didn't leave it open for a sequel. But then when they were like, hey, we have an idea for a sequel that makes sense. We tell that story. But Stanton here, again, this is a Lord of the Rings (laughs) comparison, right? Went in with like, I'm going to do this and then Gods of Mars and whatever else. So Soldier, I don't know what the third one was, right? But there were three of them that he was planning. And he released just a few years ago how he was going to get into the second one. And so I read about that and um, it was just as shitty. <laughs> All right. I thought that was maybe going to be a redemption of some kind, but apparently <laughs> it not. wasn't. It basically was like a real easy reset to be like, oh, now here we go again with all the bullshit. So, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. going to be the opening crawl, like in Star Wars. Now <laughs> here we go again with all the bullshit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the comparison to Lord of the Rings is interesting too, because of course, if Peter Jackson, and this is obviously not how the production worked because they made them all at the same time, but if he had made just the Fellowship of the Ring and then it had failed, you wouldn't have watched that movie necessarily and thought, oh, what a satisfying movie on its own. Of course it's not. But we don't mind that it's not because we know there's the later movies that will come out. Or like just more recently, like what Denis Villeneuve did with Dune, where it was only like half the story and it succeeded and now he's going to make the next one. But if he hadn't, I think that would have been a real knock against that movie more so than, than it would be now if you watch it and think, okay, well, there's more to come. And so Stanton is just guilty i guess of the the hubris of assuming he'll be in the league with some of these other filmmakers yeah i mean and he had a great track record but it's a different thing when you can go and like show an entire movie and then be like 24 minutes of it don't work let's rewrite it and reanimate it and do that as opposed to something like this where even though there were extensive reshoots it just didn't work also as i said Albert Brooks, Ellen DeGeneres, more charismatic than Taylor Kitsch and company here. I mean, even the, you know, you got Willem Dafoe, who's like one of our favorite actors out there. His character is boring as hell. Yeah, all the he plays one of the Tharks, the 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 giant green four-armed Martians. And they're they're all pretty boring and and kind of interchangeable in a way. Um, I mean, there was at least one in the credits where I was like, oh, that actor is in it. Who did they play? And, you know, you're, you're talking about all the weird names. And I read the name in the credits. I was like, I don't know who that was, but I guess that person was in this movie. So yeah. good for them. Yeah. His, uh, his work as Tars Tarkis doesn't really do much. For right. Tar, Tars Tarkis. And, and I had the benefit of having seen that other shittier movie, which also has the same character name. So I was like, oh, yeah, Tars Tarkis. That's the guy from the <laughs> Antonio Sabato Jr. movie. I know, I know who that is. Oh, yeah. It's Tars Tarkis, you know. Yeah, him. He was, uh, they, you know, they had the, they had the like Halloween costumey looking makeup in that movie rather than the CGI. But, the hottest Halloween costume of 2012, Tars Tarkis. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Be a Thark. I'm sure that's what, what Disney and Andrew Stanton were hoping for, uh, was for something like that to happen. But, but again, I think one thing that Owen Gleiberman points out here that's important is that this movie just looks like every other would-be blockbuster from this era. And, and also because these John Carter novels had been so influential on so many other sci-fi movies in the past, even though it's based on something that pioneered a lot of this stuff, it looks like it's an imitator of things like Star Wars or Dune or whatever, because those, those things came afterwards and reached 
a film audience, whereas this one didn't. And I remember at the same, you know, right around the same time, if I'm not mistaken, Monsters versus Aliens came out, right? Which Cowboys versus Aliens. Cowboys versus Aliens, which was terrible also and looked the same and felt like the same exact movie. Right. No, that's true. And that was directed by John Favreau. And I think that was that was one of the factors here that uh, that made Disney nervous about this movie, that that had come out and had not it had kind of underperformed. And and you're right. And that's not based on century old source material. That's based on some comic book that had been published like the year before that nobody read just for the sake of creating some IP. And that's the problem that they they can't differentiate this movie. I mean, at least John Favreau learned that lesson and then didn't immerse his whole career in just um, using other people's IP. Yeah, John Favreau has really found success in the IP <laughs> recycling business, sadly. <laughs> He's uh, he's not just recycling though. He's world building, Josh. Mm, mm. Well, we'll 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 save the John Favreau discussion. We've already done it, I think. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> so, Todd McCarthy in the Hollywood Reporter was a little more generous. He said, "Given that it's based on a pioneering work of science fiction, there can be little surprise that John Carter feels like a hodgepodge of any number of familiar elements." some of which were no doubt borrowed by others from Edgar Rice Burroughs and brought full circle here. This Disney extravaganza is a rather charming pastiche, if perhaps not one with sufficient excitement and razzle-dazzle to justify the reported $250 million production budget. Neither classic nor fiasco, the film will likely delight sci-fi geeks most of all, but there's enough here for general Disney audiences as well to generate solid box office worldwide. In my head, I, I again went back to uh, Arrested Development there with the narrator. <laughs> solid box office worldwide. It didn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting that both McCarthy and Roger Ebert here assume that this movie is going to be a hit. So um, despite the, the whole narrative about its, its troubles leading up to its release. So they're, they're sort of resigned to the idea that any movie in this style is going to be successful, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you would think that now, like if a Marvel movie bombed, what would that be? Yeah. What on earth would that be, Josh? <laughs> we'll find out later this month. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we haven't really had that, but you think it's it's got to be inevitable, right? I mean, even when something like Eternals underperforms, it's only slightly in comparison to the- Right, like, or Morbius or something. Right, well, yeah, and Morbius was, that's a genuine failure, but that's, of course, not a- Marvel Cinematic Universe movie so they can brush that aside or yeah. whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I feel like if this movie came out now, we would probably assume that it would be successful too because it's a big piece of blockbuster IP recycling from Disney. Of course, it's going to be successful. Right. And it's funny because I think Stanton, like you said, he sounds so confident in all of his movies. He's like, I don't want any big stars in this thing, you know. The Tharks are the stars or whatever, <laughs> right? And he's got all these like famous people as voice actors. But I know at the time, like they were looking at like, or like Josh Duhamel, who was a big star at the time. And actually, I kind of like what he's doing now with his career was in uh, the running and Tom Cruise was interested. And this was at a, maybe not Cruise's highest point, but um, yeah, it's funny that uh, this is the way they all went with everything. Yeah, I mean, Josh Dumel is fine, but I don't think he's got more charisma really than Taylor Kitsch. Like, he's in the right position in his career right now, which is mostly in, like, B-movies and stuff. I don't know that he would have carried this blockbuster any better than Taylor Kitsch did. I don't think anyone... I mean, there were, could have been a more... And, and look, like, not to... Like, Taylor Kitsch still working, still 
doing a ton of TV, right? Like he's a, he's an actor still. He is an things. actor. There you go. No, but I mean, it, this didn't kill his career, right? I mean, so, it killed his know. career that that they were attempting to make him a movie star. I mean, it didn't literally kill his entire career. But the idea of going into this movie was that this is the launch of Taylor Kitsch as like the next Leonardo DiCaprio. And that did not happen. Oh, boy. We <laughs> miscalculated that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, but I mean, also, you know, he did like Battleship not too long after this either, if I'm not mistaken. So that was another huge, you know, bomb. Actually, Battleship was a huge not bomb. <laughs> when we were when we right, were it's a big surprise yeah when yeah. we were coming up with this season and looking at what movie to talk about for this episode i was like oh yeah battleship obviously that'll be a good one to talk about and i looked it up and it made a ton of money so Whoa, it was not a go. flop i just assumed it was i did yeah. too and it's bad but it was a, a successful bad movie hey josh you sunk my theory about battleship <laughs> yes <I did. laughs> jason do you have any other background stuff there's a ton here but anything in, in particular that you want to bring right up? yeah we've talked a lot about a lot of things here josh we um well no because i i mean taylor kitsch and lynn collins who are the two leads in this thing they work together on x and the wolverine right before this x-men origins wolverine which is so a terrible it's like the worst x-men movie ever <laughs> <laughs> so they had that going for them, and um, uh, that 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 really worked out. Yeah, it did. It did indeed. <laughs> Casting choice is questionable here, I think we can say. So uh, we'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on John Carter. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012, we are talking about the flop of the year, John Carter from Andrew Stanton. And I feel like maybe we should we should go through the plot of this movie, but it would take the go rest. Go for it, Josh. <laughs> so <laughs> much Explain plot. it to me. So much plot in this movie. This movie I, it has like it has like four prologues and five epilogues. It's just so poorly structured. It's really, it's really unfortunate. Um, I mean. To, Someone should have thrown that script in the river is the river is yes Ayo. that's that's a thing right where they go to find Isis the goddess of something mm -hmm. of Mars I don't know ask Dave he likes a stupid movie <laughs> I just remember the name yeah so, the yeah. names there there are some there are some names I every time I was like whenever Taylor Kitsch or Lynn Collins has to do like a long. Uh, reading of the various names or whatever we're gonna go with so and so and so and so to this place and do the thing and i just felt really sad for them because they just lacked the conviction you have to really sell something like that when you're saying all those dumb names and they couldn't do it lynn collins was talking about how like her character was like a strong female and then once they did the reshoots she became very more like subservient and everything like that and I didn't I didn't find that character to be subservient as much as like, you know, having to make hard decisions in the idea of like, well, I now I have to be something I don't want to be to save my people type thing, which we see over and over again in films like this. Right. And I don't know what what they cut out of the movie, but I would say that she is certainly a stronger female character than I would expect for someone from a pulp novel by a male author from 1912 so you know yeah. there's that and she is stronger and more proactive than the tracy lord's version 
So, you know, oh, that's important. Wow. That's well. wild. Yeah. Nice. But okay. So, I mean, all that you really need to know about the plot of the movie is that John Carter of Earth is a human mm-hmm. person. Earthling. Earthling in the post-Civil War era who is looking for gold in Arizona, stumbles into this cave and ends up transported to Mars, where he is very confused. Barsoom. Barsoom, yes. Mars, the planet we know is Mars, and that the inhabitants of it call Barsoom. And while he's there, he gets sort of embroiled in this conflict among the various Mars factions, and he becomes a hero to the people who are led by Deja Thoris, Lynn Collins' character, who is the princess, the princess of Mars, which was, she would be the title character of this film if they had left the title intact. And I mean, I think that's really all like for all its confusingness, it's just like guy battles stuff. That's really all you need to know about. Well, the problem is, is like, it's not like guy battling one enemy. It's like guy battling enemy and then enemy of enemy and then teaming up with enemy of enemy of enemy to maybe fight off enemy and enemy of enemy. Right. And it's just it's too much of that. You got Dominic West in here and Mark Strong, who are, um, you know, really good actors. I mean, um, and Dominic West's character is just like, I mean, you could have cut that whole character all along. That's like the, uh, you're going to marry the princess and then kill her. And then you're going to take over. And, you know, he was just a puppet of like these like Mars gods, right. Who were like running time. And it's like, why don't you do it a different way? Nah, nah, we planned it this way. We're going to stick to this way. Right. Like, and what a stupid explanation that is, you know, they could have, they could have adjusted at any point in time. So that character sucks. Uh, Mark Strong, way better villain in Shazam. That's right. I said it. And um, I, and then, you know, you have uh, you have uh, John Carter. He's like a prize belonging to the Tharks. And there's like all this Thark rebellion against other Tharks, you know, and it just it's just uh, all bad, Josh. All bad. I mean, it is bad. Um, and I think that is part of the problem that guy fights other guys is really all you need necessarily, but they just keep throwing mythology stuff at you. And Mark Strong's character and the whole function of those weird gods, the the therns, is something that, as far as I could tell just from reading Wikipedia summaries, that Stanton really sort of changed and expanded on from the book. That the Therns are, I think, not even in this first book and their function in the overall story or overall series is quite different than what they are doing here. And it seemed to me like he was trying at one point to use them as some sort of social commentary because when when Mark Strong captures John Carter at one point, John Carter gets captured like so many times in this movie. Even before, even before he goes to Mars, he's always being captured. <laughs> he is. And I feel like they're almost trying to make it like a running joke, but it's not funny. Um, that was the one thing that I remembered from the first time seeing it is like, I actually really liked that. It reminded me like of an Indiana Jones type of thing, which obviously is that same, you know, that's what they're going for. Yeah. So. But no. right, that was supposed, this was supposed to be Indiana Jones on Mars, but really it was Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skulls. Yeah. Which is probably better <laughs> than this though, isn't it? I haven't seen that. It's been a while. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, so Mark Strong, at one point when he's captured John Carter and he's giving his big villain speech and explaining the motivation of the Therns, and he says something along the lines of like, you know, they go to different planets and they 
you know, let the 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 people battle it out and the the people just, you know, war with each other over and over for thousands of years and then they neglect the planet and the planet dies. And like it was some sort of comment on like environmentalism or the idea that human beings are stuck in in fighting with each other rather than being united to save our planet or something. And I, I mean, there's really almost none of that anywhere else in the movie, except in that one point. But I wonder if he was trying to say something there. Uh, I, it's interesting. Cause like uh, you, maybe he was, but it uh, like the rest of it, it failed. It, it reminded me of like, the David S. Pumpkins sketch on David SNL. S. Like, yeah. what is your deal? I'm my own thing. So, <laughs> where it, are you from? Me for. In in this context, is Mark Strong <laughs> David S. Pumpkins or John Carter is? No, I'm just saying the explanations that Mark Strong's character gives. Like, you know, like, what do you do? Whatever I want. <laughs> just like it was. Just, it was almost like a parody of itself, it felt like. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I did not think of David S. Pumpkins, but. It, <laughs> yeah, what a puzzle piece. Right, yeah, there you go, man, yeah. really. Um, but but it does feel like sort of self-parody, and I, I feel like there are things that, that again, are like almost running gags that Stanton might have thought was funny. Um, the idea that the Tharks keep calling John Carter Virginia because he says he's from Virginia and they think that's his right. name. And it just- It's okay for one joke. Right, but then... it just keeps going and going and going. And then even like very late in the movie when he has to have this rousing moment where he unites the Tharks and kind of becomes their leader and 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 gets them to go to the aid of, of Helium, to Dejah Thoris's people, and they're chanting his name and they're chanting Virginia. And you're like, we we're still doing this joke now? This seems like the wrong moment for it. Yeah, I mean, David S. Pumpkins never had any problems uniting those two skeleton dancers of his. Um, true. <laughs> I guess. This movie's bad, Josh. It is bad. It is bad. The other thing about this is that John Carter is maybe um, stupid, like, the as a person? Probably. <laughs> Did you feel this way? <laughs> I felt like they were all stupid. Every single one of them was stupid, Josh. All right. The princess was stupid and John Carter's stupid. And the um although I give him a little credit for faking his own death at the end, maybe, right? Yeah. You know, that whole convoluted like storyline where Edgar Rice Burroughs himself has become this is all added by Andrew Stanton. That Edgar Rice Burroughs himself is a character. He's now John Carter's nephew. And like 13 years after the events, the main events of this movie, he's been called to the estate of his uncle because John Carter has died and he's left this like diary for Burroughs to read. Exactly how to get rid of the body and all the burial and all this stuff. Right. So that he can then use the medallion thingy and go back to Parsum to be reunited with Dejah Thoris, who he married like two days after he met her. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was stuff was that was you know, just cut all of it. It's so it's so unnecessary and confusing and like adds nothing. It added it added running time minutes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Dave, you're defending the movie. Go ahead, you beta cuck. <laughs> yeah, I you know, here's the thing. I we've talked about it in like episodes on Star Wars and stuff like that before. Like, I'm just not that into these kinds of sci-fi adventures. And I don't see that big of a difference between this and 
some of the Star Treks and Star Wars and like Marvel when it gets into outer space stuff and Dune, for example. I mean, we recently talked about in our uh, last year's uh, top 10 first time watches episode, Josh, uh, I brought up Dune, the the uh, the older, the 84 version, um, how much I really enjoyed that versus the Villeneuve version. I, I guess when it when it's a big visionary swing of ridiculousness, I kind of tend to like these sci-fi things more than when they're actually serious and maybe a little bit more well done. So are you saying you enjoy this more than like Star Wars? Kind of. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like I just, I never got those movies. I they just said, never really found them that good. Dave's, yeah. Dave's, the beginning of Dave's argument was, uh, I don't like these movies. But you yeah. do. The, the genre, basically. Well, I mean, I think one thing about this movie, and I actually looked up the review that I wrote when this came out. And and one thing I said then that I think is 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 fair is that this movie is less reminiscent of like the original Star Wars movies than it's reminiscent of the Star Wars prequels. And yeah, I think the it's middle three, right? Yeah, the shitty ones, yeah, the garbage yeah. ones. <laughs> the gar- I mean, there's a scene, the scene where John Carter has been captured for like the 87th time and is forced to fight in like an arena or whatever. It really was straight yeah. out of like Attack of the Clones. I feel like there was the the aesthetic of it and stuff was exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was thinking of Gladiator when I watched that scene, and sure. um, you know, there was at least a good ending to that fight. But otherwise, I was underwhelmed with the whole fight. He was like just trying to unchain, not even unchain himself, but like lift the boulder that he's chained to. Right. It yeah. wasn't good, but I just think like visually and narratively, it it recalls those. And and so what I mean is, Dave, if you say you like this more than the Star Wars prequels, I feel like okay. But if you like this more than like The Empire Strikes Back, I don't know about that. I, I, I like it a lot more than the prequels. I would say I, I don't see it as being that different from the original Star Wars movies. It's just fun, silly, ridiculous adventure sci-fi stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I do agree, though, with all the criticisms you guys made about how like convoluted the story is, especially the ending. But really all of it, like all the stuff with the bad guys is just not well told. Well... Josh, should we rate this thing? Yeah, we can do that, Jason. Uh, Jason's ready to leave Barsoom, so (laughs) I'm on my way back. You're gonna get your you're gonna get your medallion and make the little chant (laughs) and return to Earth. So (laughs) I was looking for it the whole time during this movie to make it go faster. Yeah, yeah, and 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 really, if he had just held on to it, like at the beginning of the movie when he goes to Mars, he just like gets up and leaves this magic medallion on the ground. Like, oh well, I guess I don't need that. Really right. Stu- so again, problems. stupid things. Like He's I hate a dumb protagonist. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that is the thing. Like I kept thinking throughout this movie, like this is a stupid person. Like he is yeah. not an intelligent man. Yeah. So uh, should we rate this out of uh, important medallions that that nobody knows are important? <laughs> sure. Five of those. Five medallions. Ah, uh, two. I guess too. Yeah, that's really being kind of me. Right. I'm in a kind mood today. <laughs> too. I I will rate it too, which was also what I rated it initially when it came out. And but I feel like I was closer to going like two and a half this time because it does look really cool. And I I that's why I gave it two. Yeah, I, I was almost there, but but then thinking about it, like nothing about the story is interesting. The characters are dumb. So I can still, we didn't even talk about the like space dog or whatever that annoyed the crap out of me. (laughs) He's no Doug. He's no Doug. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, All right, guys. Well, uh, I'll give it four. 
Yeah, Dave, Dave, are you going to rate this a four? I'll I'll back it down to three and a half for you Man. guys. But uh, yeah, the, the space dog absolutely rules. I love oh, him. You so, really uh, you think this is a three and a half level uh, film? Three. It, it's at least a three. At wow. least a three to me. Yeah, I had enough fun with it, and it's it's very ridiculous. It's convoluted as hell, but um, I had fun with it. Yeah, go, we got to go back and listen to our Star Wars episodes and find out what Dave rated those movies. And uh, I think there were threes actually. So. Me. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know what? Good for you for sticking to your opinion, Dave. We appreciate that yeah. here. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of John Carter. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012, we are talking about the year's biggest flop, John Carter. And of course, the immediate main legacy of this film was its failure and thus the cancellation of the plan for a trilogy of John Carter movies. Josh, I have a great quote from Richard Newby of The Hollywood Reporter. I think like when they did like the decade later retrospective of uh, the film, it said uh, of John Carter that it was the moment Disney became the servant of shore bets and Hollywood realized Star power was truly gone. That was when we entered the age of name recognition where familiar characters and concepts, Jedi superheroes became worth more than any actor's name. But I don't know if I agree with that quote because this wasn't built on any actor's name. Right. And this was, in fact, built on existing IP that maybe wasn't as famous as Star Wars. But in part, if they had gotten the title better or gotten the marketing better, they could have maybe conveyed that more effectively. And I feel like if they made this movie now, maybe it would be like a Disney Plus series first, or it would be like what they are doing with Dune, where there's a movie and then there's also like a spinoff series and it would be pre-sold as this giant franchise already that people would have this like built-in awareness of. So, I mean, I don't think he's wrong about the era that followed this. And this was right around the time that I think Disney, supposedly another reason why this movie wasn't marketed properly was that Disney was already negotiating to buy Lucasfilm and they were, they'd moved on from this and they wanted Star Wars to be their main sci-fi franchise. And I mean, that's supposedly been an issue with like the Tron movie as well that came out a couple years before this, that they dropped Tron because they got Star Wars instead. Um, And certainly that's been an era between the Star Wars movies and the Marvel movies. But I think Disney is still looking for built-in IP and this is one of those. I mean, you, what did Disney make just a couple years ago that is another really famous failure was Artemis Fowl. And that's another movie that was based on an existing franchise that was a book series and that the Disney sort of failed to sell to the audience. But they're still attempting to create new versions of that that they can then recycle later on. And, and this is the big worry about Disney going forward, right? Like, wh- wh- where is Disney in 10 years with if their piles of money dwindle and like are we remaking live action remakes of live action remakes of the jungle book at that point in time you know some point you have to create stories again right and i mean i think at least in terms of like the marvel stuff there are so many marvel comic books that you could adapt that you know you could you could spend decades just adapting all sorts of but you get to more obscure characters i think more likely is is that they'll just reboot marvel And that we'll have a new Iron Man and a new Captain America and a new Thor and all that stuff and another new Spider-Man. And that's, I mean, that's what they do in the comics. So why not do it in the movies? 
to me, the worry is like, as we talked about in the Avengers episode, I currently have Marvel fatigue because there's not enough of a difference between the tones of these things. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I, I just would like to see Disney like take some shots. They have all the money in the world. Like do do something unique, do something different again. Right. Bring back Buena Vista. Give me a division that's making movies for adults that are like 20 to 30 million dollars. Oh, they're definitely not going to do that. But I, I mean, know that's what Buena Vista did to me. Yeah, Buena Vista was you, you're thinking of Touchstone, I think more. Yeah, the, Buena Vista was the uh, the distribution the, company. Yeah, right, right, and the video outlet. Yes, but yeah. Touchstone was sort of the studio label that, and like Hollywood Pictures that made the bigger or not bigger, the smaller movies that were more adult focused and not special effects blockbusters or animated movies. But but no, I mean, I think that's not what they're going to do. They'll just they'll just reboot things again. They'll they'll reboot Star Wars. We'll have a new like Star Wars, A New Hope with different actors playing Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and stuff like that. I mean, that's, I think, what they're really focused on. Or they'll make these calculated efforts to buy up some other IP and and launch something from that. And maybe it'll be a failure like with this or like with Artemis Fowl, but there'll be some other, you know, they've got Percy Jackson now in in their realm and they're rebooting that already. There were two movies that were failures but that's already being rebooted because it's an existing property that people are familiar with and so it's going to be a thing again well andrew stanton josh who had almost a pristine track record before this one right yeah you know and then you know he won best animated feature twice finding nemo and wally and then after this big strong comeback with finding dory i i think and he's been directing tv like stranger things and for all mankind He's doing that new movie with Ethan and Maya Hawke, which could be cool about a devoted Beatles fan attempts to break into the Alaskan hotel the band is staying in with the hopes of meeting George Harrison. Oh, is he's directing that? I think so, yeah. Oh, that's interesting, because I mean, he's definitely, like, the main result here was that he was sort of labeled- Director's jail. Right. But he was labeled a failure as a as a live action director, but he immediately went back to Pixar, and not only did he make Finding Dory, which was a huge success- but he's like a Pixar executive. He's the vice president of creativity for Pixar. And so he's involved in sort of the brain trust with every movie that they make. So he's extremely successful in that realm. But I think, you know, moving back into live action is tougher. And I wonder if directing all those TV episodes of live action shows that he's done is a way for him to say like, hey, look, I can do this. Like I came into Stranger Things and I made a good episode for those guys and I fit with their sort of template or whatever. I can make another live action movie. Right. And, you know, like we've said enough bad about him, but I I think like, um, I mean, look, he's made some of my favorite animated movies there is, but like, I don't watch this and think like, oh, man, this guy can't direct a movie. It's just that like there was a separation between like putting something technically uh, capable on screen and something with any emotional or visceral resonance to it. Which is weird, though, because, I mean, as technically beautiful as Wally and Finding Nemo are, there's so much emotional resonance to those movies. Yeah, that's literally why you love Finding Nemo. And they did such a good job of it, right? Like stacking the story against him. And people use Nemo as like an example of like, hey, this is how you write a script and make the protagonist um, really have to go through uh, the trenches to get to the hero's ending. So that is strange. Yeah, you know, co-writer Mark Andrews directed Brave, and he's on uh, Super Giant Robot Brothers right now. And then we got to talk about is it Michael? I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Chaban or Caban. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I was saying Chaban, but 
something like that. But he is, I mean, he he's a prolific uh, success here, is he not? He is. I mean, and it's interesting because he started out as this like literary novelist and used that as sort of an, you know, he was a, a like a geek at heart or whatever. He made these these highbrowish novels and then used that as a way to get himself into this whole world and do stuff like that. He's one of the big architects of all the current like Star Trek TV series and stuff like that. So it was an interesting trajectory for him. Yeah, so some of his novels, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh was a movie, Wonder Boys We Love. And um, I was excited. I know the Coen brothers were at one point attached to direct the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which never took place. But he wrote an article, The Prince of Fashion, about Fashion Week. And um, Gus Van Zandt will be directing that with Will Ferrell as the star coming up. Yeah, I mean, he's. Uh, I agree. Wonder Boys is a fantastic movie. I don't know if I've seen The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, but... You know, those books that were, again, there were there were these kind of maybe not highbrow, but but certainly they weren't like a Star Trek novelization or something like that. They had a lot of critical acclaim. And then he's he's moved himself into this realm of the geek stuff where he's had mixed success, I guess we could say. Right. And we've mentioned Taylor Kitsch, uh, I'd say Terminalist with uh, Chris Pratt was his last big project, but he's still working all the time. Lynn Collins uh, doesn't seem to be working all the time right now. Yeah, she was another one who, I mean, like you said, they were both in that Wolverine movie, but neither of them were big stars and her even less so. I mean, Taylor Kitsch was coming off of Friday Night Lights, which was a highly acclaimed TV series, even if it wasn't a massive rating success. And she didn't have that. And I, I saw some like message board post or something mentioning that she, I guess, maybe had some some addiction problems. That's not that's not on her Wikipedia page. So I'm not sure to what extent there was that. But that is maybe one of the the issues where her career just I mean, she still works and she's like Taylor Kitsch. She's done more TV than movies. She was on Bosch. She was on The Walking Dead. So, I mean, those are popular shows. But her her list of credits is fairly small following this film. So it may be there were some personal issues there that prevented her from working as much as she could have. Um, Taylor Kitsch, I guess, yeah, you know, he's thriving in TV. In addition to Terminal List, he was on a season of True Detective. He was the star of the a limited series about Waco, where he played David Koresh. So he's doing fine. But I, I, I feel like the whole narrative, and maybe this was because I was a Friday Night Lights fan, and I was like, really, this is the one that they're trying to make a movie star? Was that like he was good? He was like the it guy at this moment when this movie was coming out. Well, I, I, you're you're probably right, but I feel like you got to reset your expectations because, like, you know, now with movies as all that they are is mostly like we said, intellectual property remakes and this and that. Like, he's probably having a much more. Um, well-rounded and satisfyingly artistic career with all these different TV projects. Yeah, I mean, I would hope so for his sake. And certainly if this movie had been a big success, he would have just been playing John Carter for the next like 10 years or whatever. We, we'd be getting ready. We'd be talking about how John Warlords Carter 5 is coming yeah. out soon or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Dave will be excited for that. <laughs> um, wait. But the, the John Carter character... Like I said, is in the public domain. All these books are in the public domain. You and I could make a John Carter movie right now if we wanted to, and there's no. Well, let's fucking go. <laughs> so is why it's, I, I guess it's just why I'm sort of surprised that even though this movie was a failure, that no like smaller scale filmmaker, even like the Asylum, like they never made a sequel to that Antonio Sabato Jr. movie, um, to take up this IP. Um, it is, however, very uh, successful in comic books. I was going to try to maybe read 
um, one of the John Carter and Deja Thoris comics that have come out in the last decade and I didn't get around to it. But it's, there's like multiple ongoing comic book series with these characters that do well. So, I mean, there's an interest in this world and in these stories, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't translate into any kind of movie. Or again, I feel like a TV series would be the thing that would be done right now. I'm sort of surprised that Disney or someone else hasn't found a way to reboot this in a, as a streaming series. Yeah, I mean, there's a big cost to it, I think, is probably the issue there. Well, I suppose, yes, that's true. But, you know, with the way technology has advanced, you, you could do it with the, the volume wall or whatever, like they do the Mandalorian. And I feel like it wouldn't cost them $250 million, but I don't know. And, and, and going back to like the idea of Kerry Conran directing this, and, and this is just my love of Sky Captain, maybe, but I feel like someone with a, with a scrappy vision like that, you make this movie in a deliberately retro style to look like it was something from the silent film era or something like that. You make it look pulpy and not just like every other blockbuster. And you could do that on a more limited budget and it would look cool and it would be more distinctive. Well, me and you love that idea, but we all know what happened with Sky Captain. So it was a great um, movie. That was what happened with it. <laughs> it was it was a good movie, but he seems like he would do really well in that limited series space. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, I don't know. I don't need to see J any John Carter remakes. I don't think there's a, nothing about this was like, oh, this needs to be done in a different way. It just what didn't work in this uh, medium for me. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, that maybe that's why it took almost a hundred years to get it done. And I'm not saying that I'm clamoring for it. I'm just saying the fact that it is that is out there, that it is this famous character from a famous author whose other work has been adapted successfully and that it's in the public domain so anyone can grab it. It surprises me that more people aren't doing that. I'm happy to do without it, though, really. You're waiting for John Carter. Blood and honey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Anybody can do it. Some shitty low budget horror film director could grab a John Carter and just do this and nobody does. So any other legacy of this film that you want to talk about, Jason? I mean, it, it took down. Uh, we mentioned Rich Ross. He had to resign as the head of Walt Disney Studios after this came out, even though it was in development before he took over. Right. So. Um, who knows? And and we know Stanton still wanted to make the other two movies. But um, I think, you know, you and I, we keep talking about how bad the movie is in Hollywood. This is like known as one of the worst marketing campaigns ever. So that is also one of the uh, legacies that we have to cross. Right. And I think people who who like this movie or defend this movie will point to that marketing campaign as like, well, that's one of the reasons that, you know, people had the wrong impression about it or didn't know about it. And if they had just understood what it was, they would have gone to see it because it's great. And there is, we should say, the reassessment, as there almost always is for any of these failures. There is certainly a core of fans Dummies. of this film. Yeah. Idiots. <laughs> of people mm -hmm. who have tastes that are different to ours and think this is a good movie. I mean, I'm looking at the cast list that people we haven't even mentioned yet, you know, uh, Sierra and Hines and, you know, we James Purfoy and Brian Cranston, Thomas Hayden Church, Polly Walker, like this this should not have been as big as a miss as it was. Right. And most of those supporting, I mean, all of those supporting people came out of this unscathed. You know, Taylor Kitsch and Lynn Collins, this kind of stuck to them, especially because it was supposed to be a big launching pad for them. But it didn't really have any negative effect on the careers of any of those other people. R right. But if I asked you, hey, Josh, who did um, Tom Thomas Hayden Church play in this thing? Like, what voice did he do? You, There's no 
distinction between the characters here. In this he's he's Cal Cal to judges. <laughs> he's the guy who takes over from the other guy. <laughs> right. On. You're mm -hmm. you're right, but um, but you know, there was really no distinction there. Like I, I can rule better than you. Right. I have a raspy voice too, and I can rule better than you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you were keep saying the voices, but th these were motion capture performances. These people were on set in those dumb suits, on stilts, giving it their all for this stupid-ass movie. Yeah, Starks. Starks. <laughs> well, on that note, that's John Carter, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can transport us to Mars online <laughs> and on social media. Yeah, go on your machine, go, beep, 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 bark, beep, bark, bark, and then you will find me at uh, Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy. On all the socials, eat this comedy. That's a website. It's kind of up now. It's a kind of a thing. Uh, and then don't forget, uh, eat this comedy and uh, the trivia party on um, Instagram. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. Where's our Mastodon account? <laughs> I don't think we have time for that. There's still nothing on our Instagram. I don't know how many people are following us there, but they're very disappointed in us. <laughs> um, also not a whole lot at joshbellhateseverything.com, but it's there. Uh, more at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And join the Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where there's got to be some more people who like this movie. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. And I mean... Yeah, who cares? They're stupid idiots. <laughs> Don't say that. They're our listeners. Oh, I love it. We them. want their support. Yeah, they're my favorites. Jason, what's in yeah. our next episode? Josh, we're going to Wee oui, Wee, oui, the south of France, uh, the Cannes Film Festival for the Palme d'Or winner. Amour. I'm I'm happy and surprised that you've not done that accent as we've announced so many episodes in the past related to that film festival. So yes, it is Michael Haneke's Amour. Tune in for that next time. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.